Hello, everyone. You're listening to Digital Builder, a podcast brought to you by Autodesk, made for construction professionals who want to hear from those on the forefront of construction technology. If you're looking for conversations centered around where the industry is going, this podcast is for you. Each episode will feature a conversation with a construction industry leader. Together, we'll dig in on themes related to connected construction and discuss where the future of the construction industry is headed. Now let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 21 of Digital Builder. I'm your host, Eric Thomas. This week, our focus turns to data strategies and construction, including a look at a recent global industry report we released in partnership with FMI titled Harnessing the Data Advantage in Construction. We'll use that study as a starting point to discuss common industry challenges with data and how to take advantage of this opportunity to drive improvements with construction data. To help tell the story, I'm joined by Jay Bowman, Partner and Managing Director of Research and Analytics with FMI, and Andy Leake, Vice President of Technology and Innovation with PERIC. Andy is responsible for strategic planning, implementation of enterprise technology, and innovation at PERIC. His focus is on developing a proactive data-centric strategy to integrate cloud-based technology ranging from VDC to AI with processes that enable extended project teams to be more collaborative and efficient while leveraging critical data insights and dashboards from his connected data strategy. And Jay advises FMI's clients on a range of strategic decisions, including business diversification, market entry, and competitive positioning. He also co-authors FMI's annual U.S. and Canada Markets Construction Overview, the most widely read industry overviews in North America. And I've been collaborating with Jay for over four years now on research projects, and we've released three industry reports together. So thanks for joining me on the show, gents, and uh, thank you for bearing with me on the uh, lengthy introduction. I appreciate it. Uh, No problem at all. Thank you, Eric. It is a pleasure uh, to be on the show again, and uh, also just the opportunity that we've had collaborating just on a range of topics, like you mentioned over the last four years or so, whether it was, you know, understanding how time is spent on projects, both, you know, how it's spent efficiently and maybe how it's spent inefficiently, the impacts of collaboration and how that really can determine the success or failure of projects. And then really uh, the most recent one, uh, other than this one we're talking about today, the role of trust, not only in organizations, but between organizations. And you know, it's not only been rewarding for me having spent that time with you on these individual studies, but also just seeing how, you know, these past studies really contribute to and influence the approach to data and, you know, how people put value on data in their own organizations. I appreciate that, Jay. And and you're absolutely right. It's so rewarding to have an opportunity to dive into these different topics and really find out the what and why behind them so we can offer you know actionable guidance and insights for people out in the industry it's been a real pleasure and andy i know we haven't had an opportunity to collaborate together very much but i'm super thankful that you're here sharing some of your uh, wisdom about data strategies and all the the great work you're doing over at peric yeah no i appreciate you having me on the show it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about this we've spent a lot of time and energy developing a data strategy and and helping to bring our organization along. It's quite the journey, not just for our company, but for the industry in general. So I think it's a really important topic and I'm excited to talk. 
Yeah, there's there's a lot of people talking about this specifically right now, and I'm excited to pull out some more concrete. Like, what do we do? Like, how do we do better? Because there's there's such an opportunity. But as I mentioned uh, a moment ago, we'll start with a brief overview of the findings from that research report that Jay and I worked on, followed by a discussion with both guests about the state of the industry's data practices. And I think most listeners out there have seen that old chart that says construction doesn't embrace technology, and we struggle with productivity improvements. But I really think that that story has changed in the last three to five years specifically. We've had so much innovation and so many new things have come out, but also it's a large contributor to the massive amount of data that we have that we didn't necessarily have to think about how we were going to leverage and store and manage in you know, completely different ways. So with that said, Jay, I want to kick this off with you today. Can you share some of your highlights and any surprises that came out as we analyze the the data for this big report? Oh, absolutely. And I think, first of all, I would absolutely agree with you on the side of, you know, where innovation has been across the construction industry and even more broadly speaking, the AEC industry. I mean, when you just look at venture capital investment, I mean, it's grown tenfold in the construction industry over the last decade. I don't know if there's another industry where there's really that much innovation going on. So it's actually a pretty exciting time. <laughs> for us in our industry. And you kind of mentioned, you know, the rise in data and you're right. I mean, there's just been an exponential rise in the data capture among organizations in our industry. And I think it really kind of just start with there is that, you know, how, you know, a data strategy is really, you know, it may seem optional today, but it's really going to be a requirement tomorrow. And I think that is because of what we've seen from the amount of data capture we've seen. But there was really three things, I think, from the study that stood out to me. And you know, the first one just being, you know, again, is that question of is this optional or is this a requirement? Because the speed by which decisions are having to be made now, I mean, with the pressure on project schedules, budgets, and everything, the speed by which those decisions have to be made is just getting increasingly faster and faster and frankly pushed out more and more to those frontline individuals that don't really have the luxury of going back to somebody. In fact, in the study, one of the things that stood out was what was the greatest risk they saw to project success going forward? And it was the urgency by which decisions are having to be made. So that was clearly number one, and data has a strong role in helping making those decisions not only better, but faster. The second one was just the recognition, I think across the board, of the importance that data is going to really play in the success of their organizations and how things get done. I think it was over 50%, 55% probably that actually said, yeah, we recognize that this is the direction of the industry. So we're not really fighting any kind of old stigma of, hey, you know, we're not going to embrace change. They recognize it. And then the third piece, I think along those lines, not only from you know, the speed by which decisions have to be made, but that recognition, but just the realization of what kind of skills that means for people in our, in our industry. Uh, one of the people I actually spoke with as part of uh, the research that we were doing noted that you know, something like 20% of employees or, or only 20% of employees might actually be data literate. So there's a huge sort of need from a new skill development. But those are sort of three big things that stood out to me and combined what they spell is, is competitive advantage. Yeah, I think it really highlighted 
a lot of things that we were talking about or the people in the industry speak about, but we didn't have any real data points behind. And we surveyed nearly 4,000 people for this project. And through some of the, the calculations that, you know, Jay, you so graciously helped us out with, we figured out that there's nearly a $1.84 trillion cost to construction in 2020 tied to either bad data, inaccurate data, or poor data. And we figured out that this could potentially be $165 million in revenue impact for GCs with $88 billion globally in rework costs tied to bad data, which would shape up to about $7.1 million for that $100 billion or $1 billion general contractor. So like when we start getting more granular about those those big cost numbers, I think it really does combine the here's an opportunity to really improve how your organization works and the margins that you have. And then also just makes it really clear that this is just a very important thing to focus on as we build how our industry consumes technology. And Andy, I know you weren't in the uh, the report with us, so I would still be interested to see your thoughts and hearing some of the things that Jay and I just shared, and then also just your insights tied to our industry's relationship with data at large. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's awesome to kind of be listening from that outside of the report piece, just that there are so many parallels in what we're experiencing in the day to day. And, you know, this is obviously a journey that's, you know, it takes a while for the industry to evolve. You know, I, I agree with Jay's sentiment around, you know, there's a certain perception that the construction industry has been one of the, the last to kind of really adopt technology. I, I think it's been more the cadence or the fidelity of the data or the use of technology that, that has been slow to kind of really evolve. I mean, the design world kind of picked up after accounting, and I think it just took a little bit for that to find its way to the construction industry. But I think today, really, what it's coming down to now is now that we have the technology, we're, we're developing the data. Now it's coming to a point where people need to know whether or not they can trust it. You know, is the cadence high enough that they can get information in a reasonable amount of time? As Jay said, you know, people need to be able to make decisions quickly. Job sites are highly dynamic. Design teams are moving at a rapid pace. Deadlines are ever evolving and never getting longer, always shorter. And so to maintain budget, maintain schedule, people need to make decisions immediately. And you know, job sites are dynamic. Weather can impact them, COVID, deliveries, where somebody set, you know, parked a truck for the day or... You know, there's all kinds of things that can impact the job site. And that knowing that context in the, the scheme of the project, the people that are you know on the ground on the job site know more about that job, or they should, than anyone. And but they're obviously going to have blind spots. They can't consume all the information that's available to them all the time. And so that's where they're trying to find, okay, what tools do I have at my disposal today that I didn't have just a few years ago? Is the data reliable? Am I going to get it in time to make this really important decision, or am I going to have to put off a part of the work or reschedule some something on that project that is going to have a spiraling effect into the rest of the project? So, yeah, I see a lot of parallels in, in what the study was showing. And at the end of the day, it still comes down to the age-old issue with, with our industry is it's time and money. All the things we're doing have an effect. Our goal is to make sure that our clients have a good experience with us so that we can do repeat business. So understanding this industry, understanding our craft, and making sure that we're leveraging the latest technology, as Jay said, is absolutely uh, going to be the new competitive advantage. I'm glad to hear that your experience aligns with some of the findings that we had. And I want to come back to one thing you said that is 
incredibly important for me, and, and Jay and I have, have talked about this at length, is the trust piece. And Jay and I, we did a, another research project, as he had mentioned a few moments ago, about organizational trust, which you should absolutely check out if you're interested in this topic and listening to this podcast. But the relationship between trust and data is incredibly important. And Jay, I was hoping you could share more about the challenges tied specifically to data inaccuracy and how it did impact the way people trust the data to inform their decisions? It's a great question. You know, when you ask that question, actually, it makes me think of a mentor of mine who uh, often when he talked about trust, he's, he really kind of broke it down into two components. He would say it's, it's about competency and it's about consistency. You know, competency means that, okay, I can you know, trust that you, you, you know, you can do the job, that, you know, you're going to be accurate, all those types of things, and consistency that you're going to do that over and over and over again. And I don't think it's too much of a stretch to kind of take those two sort of descriptors, if you will, or characteristics of, you know, how trust is built and now put it in this sort of data environment. So you kind of start with the sort of, I'll say the consistency piece of it, right? And maybe this gets back to a little bit what Andy was talking about. I mean, there is a large percent of the data that's just not usable. And, and I want to distinguish between what I mean by, you know, not being usable and not necessarily bad. Let's put the you know, the bad off to the side for now. I mean, there is bad data, as you mentioned, and it costs the industry a tremendous amount of, of, of dollars every year. But if we just talk about just the usable component, again, from the survey results, about half the respondents, or excuse me, a large percentage of the, of the respondents said that, you know, maybe about 50% or so is not even usable, meaning you can't access it right away. It's not really in a consumable or understandable format or can't really do anything with it. It doesn't really have any, it's not actionable in that regard. And so with that, that kind of undermines that consistency, meaning that I don't know if the information I'm going to get this time is going to work, or if it's going to be the right information this time. And that undermines that trust in the data. It's just that inconsistency. And then the competency piece, now that's where I think the bad data comes in. And about Half of the respondents said that anywhere from 20 to 50% of their data is bad. I mean, meaning that you know, there is an inherent sort of error in the data, you know, the wrong information, it was put in wrong, whatever it may be. And so I think that you know, those things absolutely have to be sort of a, a addressed, if you will, from a trust perspective, that the data is going to be accurate. And that it's going to be consistent, meaning no matter when and how I access it, it's right every time. Absolutely necessary. Because you go back to that trust study we had, you'll recall two of the hallmarks of really high trust organizations where they emphasized collaboration and they shared information openly and easily. And data, in my opinion, that's why I say all these studies that we've done, you can see where they all interconnect here, is a key component to that. Yeah, I think data is the driver of the conversation now. And Andy, I, I feel like you may have been burned in the past on some bad data because you were, you were nodding your head as Jay was sharing some of his opinions on this one. And I think we all have. And it's a hard thing to sidestep sometimes because if 
if you get burned really, really badly when you were confidently using data that turned out to be inaccurate, it really increases your hesitancy to leverage data in an actionable and quick way in the future. And to build that trust back up organizationally in that you've built your data standards and your structure in a way that makes it so your project teams can go, heck yeah, I looked at this dashboard, it said X, and it means that it's X. Like that's, it's the ideal state, but we're not all uh, always there, unfortunately. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's kind of, it's, as I said earlier, it's a bit of a journey. Part of the use of technology as we're as we're evolving today and where we're headed is one missing data is as bad as bad is almost as bad as misinform you know misinter data or, or what have you. And so having gaps is always a, a thing that you got to overcome. And so it's a matter of well, I can can I trust the data? Well, you can trust the data that's there, but <laughs> the data that's not there, well, I don't know that you can or can't. So that's part of the journey is understanding that. And, you know, one of the things that we've, we've had to, to work through over, you know, the last, you know, 10 some odd years has been, first, what are the questions you want answers to? You know, do we even have the data to back it up? And if we don't, we need to figure out a way to start collecting it. That's, that may help be helpful in three months or six months. It's probably not helpful today. But then once we have the data, make sure that you have a way to test the data and make sure that what you're curating for the user base is actually usable information. And it's timely, like I said earlier, like the cadence of, of the updates and things like that have to be a, at a pace where the team's getting some value out of it and it's not after the fact. Because at that point, you're just writing parking tickets and you know, nobody really cares about the data. Where I think that's important to understand too is there's different data for different parts of the project, different phases of the project. Some data is really critical in that that critical decision making moment of you know do we do we order the guys to come on site to pour concrete or not, versus do we have the photo to back up a you know some sort of litigation thing or we're modifying schedule. What's telling us to change that schedule? Is it weather or is it shipping and logistics? What what's driving that decision? And so that's that's where the trust part becomes the most important. Like Jay said, is one is making sure that. The data that's there is reliable and that it's actually all there. The other aspect is when it doesn't work. And I'll tell you, there's two aspects of that. One is the data strategy is constantly evolving. So I'll tell anybody today, your data strategy today will be different 12 months from now. It probably will be different 90 minutes from now. But I, I, ideally not. You want consistency <laughs> in what you're reporting on so that you can look back over a longer period of time. But it's going to evolve. And so developing a data strategy that is nimble enough to allow you to make some tweaks and, and add some additional data points without losing everything that you've built up to this point, because you don't want to lose all that historical data. It's a really critical part of what we're doing. But on the rare occasion that something may go, go sideways, and that never happens in construction, but on the rare occasion, you are going to have some rebuilding to do. You know, if you have a user and they're looking at a particular data set for quality or safety or, or cost or what have you, and something went wrong, you may spend the next six weeks building back their trust that, yes, I double-checked the numbers, we triple-checked them, and it's going to take a while. And that's where setting expectations with your team, I think, is one of the most important aspects of this, is it is a, a bi-directional relationship. They're looking for information and answers from whoever's creating the data or presenting the data, and you're looking for guidance from them on what's going to help them make you know important job project decisions. So letting them know, hey, we don't have everything perfect. It's going to be a little bit of a bumpy road. Please bear with us. That only builds you a little cushion, but you should take what you can get.
<laughs> I appreciate that insight. And I will get into some of the how do we do this better in a few minutes. So for out, those out there listening, like we'll have some actionable guidance coming soon. So uh, please stay tuned because I think uh, it's the important half of this conversation. But a theme that comes up on this show a lot and just something I think about pretty frequently when it comes to construction technology and data is the balance between the quantity of the data captured versus the quality of the data captured. And the increased innovation, I think, is actually contributing to this noise a little bit because it's harder to figure out how to make sure everything is seamlessly moving from place to place unless you've really built yourself on some sort of you know real holistic platform solution. But Andy, I'm, I'm curious, how have you found the balance when implementing technology at Peric between the, the quantity and quality discussion? So two very important aspects of this, entirely different ways, right? So the quantity of it is the first part you got to tackle. I, I think the quality part kind of comes with this part, but the quantity is the first thing because a human being can only consume so much information at a time. And they've got other things going on besides just looking at a report or a matrix or a bar graph. So how, how you can serve that information up in a way that's helpful but doesn't take away from their focus on the day-to-day. -day. You know, the way we approached this was to create curated dashboards for a project team. And we try to curate them based on their role in the phase of the job so that there's not endless, you know, bar graphs and pie graphs for them to try and noodle all the way through all the information. They're looking for key insights. What are some indicators of, hey, this could be good or bad? So simple things like stoplight coloring, you know, red bad, green good, yellow, probably on its way to bad. You know, simple things, but they become muscle memory. And once people get used to that, it's something they can rely on. Then you can start to focus in on the quality. You know, I think quality is more perception of, you know, really noodling through what are the questions they need answers to. Okay, so it's it's one thing to understand that a cost book item might be a little high or a little low, but why? Why is it off? And what contextual data needs to go along with that to help them understand, yeah, it's off, but it's off because shipping was delayed. But they're going to give us a 50% discount down the road. So, you know, whatever, you know, whatever's going to be that's going to help us out long-term, these are long-term relationships, you know, generally speaking. So the quantity of it, I think we try to manage that by just how we curate it in a way that they don't have to go run reports or search for it or go dig into the weeds and try and get it. It's simplistic dashboards in the most simplistic way. I've already spent more time describing it than what we try, we try to put on a dashboard, honestly. The quality, I think, comes back to driving into what are the the questions they need answers. You're super on point here, Andy. And, and I think it's so important to be asking those big picture questions about, like, what do we actually want to achieve here? Because with this influx of, of new technology, if you're consuming, consuming, consuming without thinking about that end goal, it really contributes to what Jay and I discovered during this research is there's a common held feeling between stakeholders, whether they're at a big company or a small company or somebody who's further along in their data maturity as far as just experiencing decision paralysis on deciding what the heck do we do because there's so much stuff and it seems really overwhelming. And so like we'll get into some of the nuance there 
there, but you know, narrow, narrowing your focus a bit always helps in making those improvements. But making sure you do that under the the umbrella of intentionality, and then also I think just standardization and how you capture and consume your data is is so terribly important because it makes it so it's difficult to look organizationally too, especially if your projects are doing everything in a really different fashion. So that's when you back up into your organizational data strategy and you've got everything spelled out very clearly, it leaves less room for interpretation, ensures that you've got you know something that's easier to work with and gives you what you need at the end of the day. So I think we've covered a really nice foundation of what the state of construction data looks like right now. Plus, we learned a little bit about the report, which if you're listening, you should absolutely go download it because there's so much insight there. And regurgitating statistics and data points at you is not an interesting way to kick off a podcast. So I, I definitely encourage you to take a peek at the final report. It's a lot of fun. And there'll be links to that in the show notes as well. So it'll be easy to find. And if you're a podcast fan, there's an audiobook version, not read by myself, somebody more professional than me. So if you want to, you know, work out and listen to uh, construction data, that's a, a great way to get going. But we, we, <laughs> we highlighted earlier that across nearly 4,000 people we surveyed, they, they identified that one out of three three decisions that resulted in poor outcomes were caused by using bad data, which is a really alarming statistic to see. So Jay, I was hoping you could tell us a little bit more about how our listeners can ensure that the data that they're capturing is not bad. Like where do they start? Well, I think this goes back to something I want to piggyback on that Andy mentioned. It's the, it's the data integrity, right? I mean, that's, that's number one. And I, I think one of the common things that we heard, whether it was through the interviews or through the survey, was that some of there's probably three really common challenges that impacted that data integrity. And one was, I'll call it for the lack of a better word, multiple project inputs. So here I'm talking about things like spelling. I mean, we had people who tell us that you would not realize that there are 30 different ways that you can spell the name of one supplier <laughs> because <laughs> sometimes you can use all capital letters and sometimes you use, you know, just the regular, you know, uh, capital at the beginning of the sentence. Sometimes it's corp, sometimes it's, you know, corporation. But those things, although they seem minor, actually added up from just a, you know, there's multiple project inputs. That gets back to one of the challenges I said, whether it's, you know, is it usable information? If I'm looking for a company, I think it only shows up once and it shows up, you know, multiple times. The other one was just multiple processes. I mean, people mentioned, you know, hey, we found out we had 20 different QA processes. How are we capturing data? We had a different process almost every single time. And the last one being multiple platforms, you know, where we were letting different people choose different software, different hardware you know, different approaches, some people are using spreadsheets. And that gets back to that just disconnected component of it, which can contribute to bad data, just in terms of how, you know, we start to share data across. But I think one of the other things that really stood out to me, and it also kind of gets back to what you were talking about with the data paralysis, was that almost everybody to a man or a woman said that really you have to start small. And I didn't mean start small, but start in one place. You can't really go solve all of this at one time because I think it's just too much. But picking that one area, you know, where you can kind of like crawl, walk, run, but really just standardizing you know, how that data is captured, creating a common data environment. Those things, in my opinion, stood out more than anything is what could really start to address some of the data integrity 
issues and trying to limit that amount of bad data. Yeah, I, I think you're absolutely right, Jay, is that narrowing of the focus, not necessarily to be dismissive of all the parts of your business that could benefit from improvements, but picking something that's easier to you know tackle, especially something you know you have a considerable quantity of data that hopefully is good for that starting point to make refinements. And you prove that test case to your team and your organization, and then suddenly you've got more of a green light to start making those changes elsewhere and building into that data strategy, you know, incrementally instead of going boom like we're we're doing everything today because that's just a little bit too much to bite off especially if you're a very large organization andy do you have any additional thoughts there you might have captured some of this earlier but getting uh getting to the root of that bad data i think is something that everybody should aspire to that's listening to this yeah i think you know to jay's point a second ago just you've got to start i mean if you haven't started by now you're already behind like you got to start start small to me it's it's Focus in on some some area that you have some data that's that's measurable, valuable data. I'll tell you, for us, we started in two basic areas. One was financial, and the other was safety. And those are the two simplest places. Now, financial is more complicated, but we tried to like focus in on a very particular area and kind of grow from there. But on safety, it was again, it's not just the data. It's as Jay mentioned, multiple platforms. You have multiple people that are curating that information or collecting it or hopefully collecting it and managing the data standards. And there's just a lot that goes into it. And then how you're going to get it out to people. It's, there's as much a logistical challenge to this as there is a data problem to this. So it's not necessarily bad data. It's just it's managing the whole thing. And it's, it's a much bigger effort than, than just rolling up a spreadsheet and turning it into a graph. It's, there's a lot more to it. And that's too, I think, uh, you know, when Andy mentioned, you know, your data strategy is likely to change 12 months. That's not a bad thing because you're at, like, if you start small, you start that one, one point. And I think in, in the case studies that we did, that was the common thread through everybody. No one tried to solve everything at one time. They chose one area of the organization where they could apply a solution. And so to, to Andy's point, that's, it's not only okay that that data strategy might change 12 months from now, it should change 12 months from now because you're learning, you're adding to that body of knowledge and you just kind of incrementally find, well, where's that next thing? What did I learn from here? That's going to open up something else. And it should be because <laughs> the world is always changing anyway. And we're just always kind of adjusting to it with those strategies. Jay, I always tell people, the more I learn, the less I know. <laughs> I mean, because the more you dig into it, it's like peeling back layers of the onion and you're, oh, well, if I can do this, well, can I do this? And if I had this one extra data point, then all of a sudden I can start to tie these things out in a different way. And and that's, you know, it's it's amazing. Like the more you dig into data, the more you learn. Mm -hmm. That's when you, you've just identified yourself as a technology nerd, Andy. <laughs> it's so easy to go down the rabbit hole on this stuff, though, because as soon as you, you build that base layer, then you start going, oh, I can do this now that this part of my, you know, technology stack and my data is just dialed now. So it opens up new possibilities. So there's so much more. And Andy, you mentioned one other thing a moment ago that I'd like to come back to as well, is there's a human element in here that we really need to, to remember as we think about how we work on this challenge organizationally is in an industry as well, because this data conversation is not only 
I need dashboards, I need something better than spreadsheets, I need information. The improvements to data strategies and the ability to consume it better and make actionable insights quickly really just impacts how people get their work done. I mean, we're all very familiar with long hours in the construction industry. I worked them myself many, many days when I was still working for a couple GCs. And I think anything we can do to improve the human aspect of getting their work done and then also building that foundation to leverage more advanced technologies to augment what the people are doing, it's such a win for this industry at large. And it's it's a challenge. It's not like you're going to go, oh, I want to use machine learning and then uh, I didn't capture any data. It's on spreadsheets. You're going to do that tomorrow. But if you build that foundation correctly and you think about those incremental changes that are attainable to make, you can look at that future state and go, I can make this better and I can support my team better. And it all really does start with the data. So we've, we've said data about 10,000 times on this conversation. We'll keep it going, but it's, it's just so important. But Jay, I want to come back to the interviews that you mentioned again. And I think there were so many strong nuggets that you got during those conversations that I was hoping you could share some more of the success stories or just what really did work for the people that you were speaking to. I know we've, we've covered some of the challenges and the bad, but it'd be great to just hear a few more examples of we did X and it worked really well. And this is fantastic because it's a challenge, but it's an opportunity at the same time, I guess, is the right phrasing from my perspective. I mean, in the interviews, I mean, because these were done, you know, across multiple, you know, geographies across the globe, it was interesting to get different perspectives from, you know, people in different parts of the world, even though I would say that there was still sort of a commonality to some of the issues and some of the solutions. And as you pose that question to me, I would say maybe there's two or three that stand out, but I could bucket these into one was a story about the what, you know, what did a data strategy do for their organization? And the other one or two I might share with you is more along the how, how did they actually make this work? And so if I start with the what, and this again, is a continuation of, of really a lot of the same themes that we've been bringing up about, you know, that you know, there is a time element to this that you learn from the data. And that's that's part of the beauty of it, in my opinion, is that as, as one thing occurs and you see what that does, it opens up an insight to something else. And next thing you know, you have a string of pearls, you know, to really look at in terms of all the things that are quite possible. But in one of them, uh, an individual I spoke with was talking about how you know, one project is not enough, meaning, you know, trying to collect that data in one project. When you start to, you know, combine that project data across projects and even across other different aspects, that's that time element. It's not an overnight fix. But one of the areas that they had sort of migrated to over time was combining their project cost data with some of the damages data that they were collecting. So, you know, looking for correlations and saying, well, what could we find from this? And they were able to actually take some of the, I'll say the average number of damages or defects that they experienced, you know, per sort of a dollar sort of amount, if you will. And essentially we're able to start to say, okay, we not getting to necessarily the realm of predictive analytics here, but at least a red flag that starts to say, hey, when we start to see the number of damages or defects per dollar, you know, reach this amount or whatever that amount was, it just sort of flew, it kind of triggered something for them. Kind of like what Andy was saying, you know, kind of red, green, yellow. 
And it allowed them to sort of address those things earlier because they knew when they got over a certain amount, you started to run over budget, over schedule, whatever. And so in a way, they were creating rules, if you will, that served almost like pre-decision making, right? It takes some of that cognitive sort of stress out because the rule is already looking for some of these things with all the other things I got to be thinking about. If I'm a project manager on a day-to-day basis, having those rules in place to kind of take some of that cognitive load off and be looking for those things was super valuable to them because of the cost savings that they were able to uh, to realize as a result of that. And, And I think that also just gets back to one of these other things. We are already looking at an industry where we're working on such thin margins. And we hear people talking all the time about looking for profit pockets, you know, from a construction kind of contractor perspective. This is probably one of the best profit pockets out there, you know, because you're plugging holes basically in the bottom of the bucket to increase that profit side. On the other side, the how, you know, I mean, that's people mentioned, I, I, I talked about the one person I spoke with that brought up the whole issue of data literacy. And again, sorry to keep going back to things that Andy said, but there really is a common theme here, was the realization that having the data, being able to run some of these calculations and these correlations and everything else was fine, but somebody has to consume it. And so that data literacy, the way they sort of address some of that was just in how do they present it, you know, red, yellow, green, how do you make it intuitive? If it's, if you're trying to make some really fancy, you know, uh, analytic type of uh, report, the likelihood of being used was really poor. They had to find ways that it was instantaneously understood. I can see what it means so I can avoid those bad decisions. And, you know, kind of maybe along that same line, we found that some, another organization using things like iPads and tablets rather than trying to push out some software on a laptop was a much better approach because people were more intuitively able to use the tablet or the laptop compared to if they were trying to use another program. Jay, I really appreciate you sharing the insight there with, you know, just the people that we spoke to and the success that they've had. And I want to come back to the first example that you've got. And I'm going to kick the question to Andy because I I think uh, he might have a good answer for us on this one. But I think it's important to identify how we can start making a pivot from only having our data support in the moment project level decisions and using that data and moving it into an environment where you can leverage data at that organizational level. Andy, do you have any thoughts there on on steps that you can make to start making that transition where you can take your data from project to project instead of it being captured once and then never looked at again? Absolutely. You know, absolutely. I I think this goes back to the data strategy. And this is something that we were very planful of out of the gate. I can't tell you that it went perfect. And I can tell you that there were technology challenges along our way that prevented us from doing some of the things we really wanted to do. Because as Jay mentioned, it's not just one platform we're using. We're, We're using couple dozen platforms that are collecting data that we want to have fed to the project teams or fed um, across the organization. And so the approach for us out of the gate, you know, was one, we want to make sure we had data collected. The easiest way to collect that was hopefully in the cloud or, or in, a, in a centralized location. But beyond that, the data had to be cross-project in, in nature. So whatever data we were collecting at the project level, we ultimately wanted it to roll up to a cross-project level so that, so that we could really understand, okay, well, we're having quality issues or we're having safety issues. What kind are they? 
And then if we have consistency that we're constantly having issues with people wearing hard hats or something like that, that we're able to identify, we have a training issue or opportunity, right? Or we're seeing issues in, in people getting payment on projects or something like that. You know, understanding is it systematic or is it a, you know, a systematic issue on a project level or is it symptomatic of an organizational problem in the way that we're managing reporting on data or the cadence of the reporting or, or how we're following up. So there's a lot, a lot of that that goes into the data strategy itself. And I wanted to make sure I touched on this a second ago, as Jay was talking, you know, the industry is all a buzz about data and analytics and dashboards and everything and reports or, or emails or however we communicate are all just vehicles for sharing the information, right? And how we do that really you can kind of approach that in a way of how am I going to meet somebody where they're at and hopefully evolve them over time? Because they're not going to use it at the simplistic, most simplistic level. They're not going to use it when it gets more complicated. And what we what we learned in our, some of our work has been, we developed some dashboards with some really simplistic KPIs. And then over time, there were more questions that were asked. So it wasn't so much a data strategy that, that had to evolve. It was, okay, we've hit, hit a certain level of comprehension of using the data. Now we want to do more. Now we want to know more. Now we want to know the why, or we want to know how to you know, prevent something. So there's, you know, one of the things you brought up a second ago was understanding or, or kind of evolving people through the use of data, you know, helping people understand there are different types of analytics. And some of them are telling you what happened. They're, they're the parking ticket or the police report. Some of them are telling you kind of why it happened. Well, they parked in front of a parking meter. And then there's understanding more of, you know, the predictive or the prescriptive and understanding what's likely to happen. What would happen if we did this and prevented it? Hopefully we could save money and fill, you know, some of those holes. So, you know, we're constantly looking for ways to avoid project fade to go along with those profit pockets, because then you actually realize the full value of your effort in the project that the, your customer, your client is getting the full value of you delivering a project on time and on budget. And then in return, by working smart and, and communicating really well with your team, you're able to recognize the full profit on the project as well, which helps everybody. So I think it's really important to understand that the data piece of it is really driving all these other aspects of the project. I really like the phrase profit pockets, by the way. I'm, I'm going to steal that. I hadn't heard that one before, and I'm going to I'm gonna capture it and start using it on the show with some more regularity. So those out there listening, forward to me uh, to stealing that one. But I'm going to float this question out to both of you. Whoever wants to jump in on it first is, uh, is completely okay, because I'm not sure which one of you is going to have a stronger opinion. But how does the baseline that we're building here with the data strategy and intentionally cleaning our data lead into some of this more advanced technology, like artificial intelligence, machine learning, predictive analytics, virtual reality. I, I just love both of your gut check on like how this all interplays and you know what the future or today brings because this is stuff that's being used you know right now in the industry as some of our recent episodes would highlight very clearly. I think it's, it's how do you create a foundational education, right? And that's probably a, a silly way to describe it. But if I'm trying to teach someone to drive a car, Right. I'm not going to tell them how an internal combustion engine works and, you know, how the you know metal comes together and is formed. I can explain to them that, you know, the gas pedal and the steering and that this is how you, you make sure you go, you know, in the brake. And so I think in some ways, you know, what we've been talking about so far today, that's where we want people to start. 
you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning, that's understanding how the engine works. That's, you know, that, that's going from algebra one to calculus or whatever. And so I think it's necessary that think that you're ever going to get to that stage or just jump in at that stage. I think you're misguided. You know, we have to start at sort of that ground level. And I think that's what this represents. And, and the only other thing I would say is just so that people are clear, the data strategy is not the end goal. The data strategy is, is the vehicle by which we're trying to accomplish some other you know, objective for the organization, which is either better decisions. And the reason we're trying to get better decisions is so that projects are successful, not only for our clients, but for you know, our company as well. And we just have to keep those things, I think, in mind. Yeah, so I, <laughs> I agree with Jay. You know, I think an important aspect of this, too, is as I kind of sit here and think about this, is we've been very purposeful about having an integrated approach to technology. And what I mean by that is we have data coming from so many different places. You can get value out of one platform reporting on one thing, like I said, you know, whether it's cost or safety or something like that. But then what happens if you start to you mix them together? What other insights can you start to get? And, you know, thinking beyond, I mean, you know, right now we're, we're trying to get the HI to keep up with all the data and the AI and the ML aspect of this, you know, machine learning in and of itself sounds like a big scary word. It's really just computers learning how to, you know, more efficiently process data so that we can consume it more effectively. The same thing with artificial intelligence is, you know, we got to teach the AI to figure out what we want to know to some degree. And then at some point that, that kind of flips to the other side where all of a sudden, you know, in some utopian, utopian world, <laughs> we're just inundated with so much valuable data. We're going to go buy lottery tickets every day. But until we get to that point, you know, let's, let's learn together with some of that. Take, you know, take some of the, the scariness of the black box away. I think like Jay, the way Jay put it was perfect. Let's teach people how the fundamentals of how to drive the car right now. We'll get to the other part. Because as soon as we have that foundation, if they start to understand the basics, then they're going to go, okay, now I want to add on some new Chrome parts. I want to do some more exciting things. I want more ways to slice and dice the data or drill down into it. And then their nerd starts to show, right? <laughs> and, and when we're all nerded out together, geeking out together, that's great. But at that point, we all have a kind of a level set together. We, we are using the same terminology. We're referencing the same data sets and saying, yeah, I know when we got this data, it came from here. And I know when it's going to get updated. And I know how much I can trust of that data. That is half the battle. And, you know, once we get over that hill, then we're on to greater and greater things. So, you know, as, as Jay said a second ago, is let's get, let's make progress. Let's move people forward. We're never going to be done. We might be substantially complete, but we're never really done. And it's going to evolve. So I think that's the great part about, you know, being a human is that you learn some, you go apply it, you learn some more, you go apply that and it's a practice. So I think that's what's exciting about it to begin with. Yeah. And having that safe space to, to actually go out and do that, you know, where you, you catch people if there's a misstep, but you're all learning at the same time to improve that overall strategy. But Jay, I really like your analogy. I'm going to steal that one from you too, because it's, it's so important to ensure, especially early on when we're starting this process, that people have the information they need and understand and is relevant without giving them the, how does a combustion engine work? How do I change my tires? How do you do all this stuff? Not that they 
that information doesn't have value, but you're providing it at the moment that it's relevant for them and helpful and isn't overwhelming. So it's that that iterative process. And then once you do lay that foundation and then you get to qualify to everybody, like these more advanced technologies that we can now start implementing like machine learning or artificial intelligence, they're not scary tools and they're not replacements. They're augmentations to what humans already do well. And they also capture the elements of things that humans do not do well, like look at 25,000 site photos to identify site safety incidents. Like if you tell your you know, head of safety that that's their job tomorrow, they're not going to be very happy with you. But, you know, this advanced technology can can really augment in a way that makes us more efficient and then also safer at the end of the day, too, which is obviously paramount for our industry. I've got another question for both of you, because I think it's all interconnected to data literacy and in understanding what to do with this technology and the information available, and then also how. So Andy, do you have any guidance based on what you've been doing at Peric or any industry best learnings on how we can make meaningful improvements in data literacy for those out in the construction space? You know, Eric, that's a really great question. And and for a couple of reasons, you know, not to qualify your question, but I, but I will tell you that, you know, it really, the audience is really important to understand. Like you said earlier, it's all human for the most part, right? People are using this information or they're not. And that, there's a key distinction there. And so what, what I think we've learned or what I've learned at least is you have to meet people where they're at to a certain degree so that you can get their buy-in in the process. You got to get them comfortable with the terminology. You start throwing acronyms at people and they turn off immediately. And it's like, ah, BIM, done. It's like, no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's just one word. It's one acronym. I promise. Then you throw up a word cloud with 50 of them, then the whole room just evacuates. Like, there's no way. So you've got to, I, I don't want to oversimplify it because it's important that people understand it is serious stuff, right? But at the same time, you've got to meet people where they're at. You know, it's, like I said earlier, it's a journey. We're all on it. It's all philosophical, I hear, I, I know. But but once people start to have a feeling, and you know, if you're leading this type of effort within your organization, you have got to be consistent. You have to constantly be beating the same drum week after week using the same terminology, putting it in front of them, speaking to it on a, you know, whether it's on a presentation board or on a dashboard or on a piece of paper in front of them. Whatever means connects is consistency. Once they get more comfortable that BIM is a thing, it's been around for 40 years. It's a thing. What does it mean? You know, I've heard, like Jay said earlier, there's 30 different ways to spell a company's name. There are 50 different ways to, to figure out what an acronym stands for, the worst of which is to Google it. <laughs> so put a data dictionary or, or a, a basic list of here's the things we're going to be talking about and give it to people ahead of a meeting. Give it to them ahead of a presentation. Let them know what they're getting themselves into. This, you know, just it kind of helps. One, it's not a surprise when they hear it for the first time, and they're like looking at their cheat sheet trying to find it. But then, the more you can talk about it, and you know, as you're going through it, you know, the first time you walk somebody through a dashboard or report, help them understand what they're looking at. You know, why the things are here, and make sure that you constantly put yourself out there. I'll tell you, like the vulnerability piece is really important to this, but you're never going to get their buy-in if they don't think that they can kind of like chip the edges a little bit and let them know that it's, you know, it's not like a locked concrete box. If they've got questions, let them ask, let them, let them challenge you. They don't believe your data. Great. Now you want to hopefully have the right answers, but if you don't, that's okay. 
And you may not, you likely won't have all the answers and being comfortable with that, that is really critical because once you know that, then you start to understand what are the questions they really want answers to challenge them right back. You don't like this. Why? How can I make it better? And then make sure again, you kind of manage expectations. Okay. I hear you. This isn't perfect. This is what we have today. And this is kind of how it works. Give me three months, build in some, some space. It will take longer than you think, but let them know you are going to make improvements on it. And as Jay said earlier, the consistency and the competency to actually come through is critical to the trust. Cause it's not just the data they're trying to trust. It's you they're trying to trust. And it takes a while to build both of those. So I think you hit the nail on the head there and you, you've got to take your people along with you on this journey. It's not a, a prescriptive action where you show up and go, hey, everybody, we have a data strategy now. So you're going to do this because regardless of if it's the best data strategy that applies to every nuance of your business, you could just brilliance like you show up with brilliance. But if you you know, bring it to the table in the wrong way, you're still going to have hesitancy, hesitancy and resistance. So it's, it's a conversation and making sure you're checking in along the way. So Andy, I, I really like your approach there. And the other cool thing that's kind of happening now is the, the different technology that we're implementing either on projects or in the office. Like 10 years ago, this was all the realm of the VDC team where it was like advanced tech. Oh, the VDC guys do that. I don't, I don't mess with that. I don't know anything about that. And that's a totally different conversation now because the technology is accessible it's easier to use and understandable the uis are better the, the the gadgets that we have are great and if you have the right tool in the right superintendent's hand i don't care if he's never sent an email in his entire life if you can show him that it adds value and it's easy to use you can get him to use it it's just empowering him in the right way instead of showing up and going here's an ipad all the stuff is on there that you need you're good now it's like no no he's not like you got to help him along the way jay do you have any thoughts there from any clients you've worked with in the past as far as just ensuring that data literacy piece is is so important because i think it's it's kind of the other crux like it's the other part of the data conversation we can have the best data in the world but if you know those out there don't know how to leverage it or use it so what you know you know real simply it comes down to two things one is understanding the relationship and it's no difference different than normal literacy right meaning okay i understand how these letters come together and these letters form a word and these words come together and they make a sentence and the sentence comes together and make a paragraph and you know i understand the relationship and to me on the the data literacy literacy side it's the exact same thing it's understanding how this set of data and this set of data tell me something of value. The relationship and the connective tissue is where all the value resides in this. And to be able to understand that when this happens, we get this result, you know, whether it's predictive or trying to understand, all that's so important. And then the last thing is, I, I think where people have been more successful is they realize that all this is what is a do with, not a do to. And the distinction between that is Here's what I do with this to make my life easier, make my jobs better versus something that's being pushed down. This is you shall do this without any explanation of that literacy side of understanding, well, well, why am I doing this? Why do I care about these things and how do I understand that relationship? 
I really like that. It's it's just a really deliberate process to bring all of this together in a way that impacts the bottom line of the business, but also impacts your people at the same time. Like it's a very important relationship and balance to maintain. And everybody's sick of talking about the labor shortage. But if you're not taking care of your people in this particular moment, they're going to go somewhere else and replacing them is going to be an absolute burden. And if you want to go back into the trust dance, Jay and I did a lot of work trying to figure out how much that actually could costs you to replace those top tier talent. Uh, it's not a small number. So go back and check out our, uh, our trust and construction report from 2018, if you're interested, but I want to get the crystal balls out now. And so let's pretend that, you know, harnessing the data advantage in construction was the lever to pull in the industry. And we're all jumping on the data strategy train and we've got all these improvements. And of course, I, I recognize that that is very aspirational, but, you know, hopeful at the same time, like, where would you guys say, or feel like we're going to be in, say, 10 years time when it comes to our relationship with data and our ability to effectively leverage it. Andy, could you kick this one off for us? Well, I'll tell you, I wish that I had all the answers to this question. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I can't tell you exactly what's going to happen in 10 years. My, my insight tells me that if, if we're really if we're embracing all the technology that we have today to its fullest capacity and, and realize, you know, the bell curve, I mean, everything's supposed to just be taken off vertical. We should be at a point where not only is the data getting better and the insights getting better, but the use of it is getting better. I would like to think we get to a point at some point in the distant future where the people, you know, so we're focused on the people in terms of helping them, you know, do a better job, be able to rest easier, they're making the right decisions, make sure they can go home on time and watch their kids play baseball, you know, have a life, you know, like people work to live, they don't live to work. So that's, to me, my goal has always been, how do we get people home on time so they go, go spend time with their families and do things like that? So to me, if we're really leveraging the technology, we might get to a point where, you know, this, if COVID has taught us nothing else, it's taught us that we can work remote. You can't build remote. You can prefab remote. You can't build on-site remote. So there's, you know, there's not a one-size-fits-all answer to all of this. But we may get to a point where the concept of remote project management becomes more of a reality. I mean, we're already doing aspects of it, having job site cameras and 360 cameras and you know drones flying sites and scanning for not only you know earthwork but progress and being able to you know scan back and forth and look at what happened last week, what happened this week logistically what's on site what's ready to go where's the tower crane all that kind of stuff i think we're going to get to a point in the future where the ai is going to start to learn more about our our creature habits like what do we constantly do on job sites you know when it's on the outside of the building when it's on the inside of the building when it's a big site project when it's not what are the common things like that's what i'm expecting from the ai i want it to start seeing the things that are blind spots to us i think we get to that point you know, we may be working from a beach one day. I don't know that all of us will be, but <laughs> we got to get to a point where the technology, you know, for the longest time I've told people, you know, if you're expecting technology to make your life easier, you're looking at it wrong. It should make your life better. It should make you know, your decisions more sound. Easier will come with better, but it's going to take a while. And so to me, that's kind of where the opportunity lies right now is let's get better. Let's get adopted. Let's Let's grow proficiency in the tools that we have because they're different. You know, this is going to sound super nerdy, Eric, but you know, you might you might want to you might want to pitch this when our trade market for later. But Excel, you know, of yesterday, you know, is, has always been the tool that people leaned on. 
But I'll tell you, whether it's Power BI or, or one of these other BI type solutions, I mean, BI tools are becoming the new Excel. Because what you could do in an Excel file, in a spreadsheet, you know, was just digitally what you were doing in a paper notebook that our field guys had before or our accountants had in the past. But BI tools are quickly becoming the, you know, the Excel file or the Excel tool of tomorrow because not only can you start to analyze specific data, but now you can start to think about it in a bigger context across, you know, one project or multiple projects or one scope of work or multiple scopes of work. And that's where the deeper insights start to come from. So I know it's kind of probably a longer answer than you were expecting, but that's kind of how I see it. That's good. It's it's an evolution, really. Like you're you're absolutely right. Like Excel is still an important tool in the right circumstance, but we were beholden to it because there weren't custom tools that suited our industry for such a long time. Like fortunately, that has changed now, and we can leverage new technology, be more effective and collaborative, and we don't have a you know a, a myriad of Excel documents living on a Microsoft server somewhere that dies in the middle of a bid day, and you know the drama continues. So we're we're past those. days. Days, thankfully the data is no longer locked up for an excel cowboy to own it you know their computer goes down you've lost all that information that's the value of, of using tools that are more platform oriented is yeah you may have some bad data but at least you don't lose it and you know where it came from and you can go back and, and clean it up if you need to but you don't lose it and you don't want it all and it, a lot of data is not useful for long term but what you have today you definitely want to make sure that it, it's there and reliable so yeah, you've got that that accurate and solid common data environment to build on. And I liked your point, too, about that working remotely. And obviously, construction is always going to be a blended approach because we're building things. Like, like you have to be there to build the thing to a degree, regardless of what's going on. But the one of the silver linings that's come out of the pandemic is, I think, a new an honest relationship with where remote work fits into the different industries that exist in the world. So it's going to be different for construction than it is going to be for information technology, et cetera, et cetera. But in addition to it making our time more efficient, it also has opened up potential access for opportunities to a wider scope of people. So you could have an absolute data nerd that lives in Idaho and is just going to crush your you know, dashboards and all of this stuff and your projects in San Diego, and that's okay. And now they have access to that job and they didn't have it before. So that's, I think, one nice thing that we can kind of build on and iterate. And it's going to be a bit of a fluid process for our industry specifically, but it's an important one. So, Jay, if you're getting your crystal ball out and looking at, you know, 10 years down the line, what uh, what do you think is coming our direction? Well, I think uh, kind of to piggyback on the conversation, I think tool is the operative word here because I don't think it's 100 percent, but I'd say 99.9 percent of the people in this industry are in it because we love what we do. I mean, we love building. And, you know, you think about Con Expo or any of these other big events where the latest you know, kind of new tool is out there and everybody wants to use it because not necessarily because of that tool itself, it's because of what it allows me to do. You know, like, well, you know, I really don't want a hand shovel because I really like digging with my fingers or, you know, now I'm just going to stay with the hand shovel and you can have the pneumatic, you know, shovel over there. I mean, that we don't even think about that. I mean, we're automatically going to adopt those tools because we immediately see how it impacts our ability to do what we love doing. And, and Andy said, I mean, to work so we can live, so we can really have a legacy of these great projects. 
But I think the other side of it's true as well. And I think one of the things that gets lost is we often talk ourselves as builders, but you know, construction is a professional services industry. I mean, that's really what it is. No different than the you know legal profession, accounting, you name it. We're a professional services business. And why wouldn't we use tools that include data to make that part of our industry just as better as we would moving from digging with our hands to using hand shovels to, to using pneumatic you know, shovels as well. And so that's really my hope. And I, and I actually, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, very optimistic about our industry. I really think that we have some of the best people in the world working in our industry and they will do this. It just takes time, you know, but in 10 years, hopefully, you know, We'll look back at this conversation and say, remember, we were talking about that. <laughs> that seems so silly to talk about now because everybody's doing that. And so that's the way I look at it. I mean, it's professional services business. It's about making good decisions is what a professional services business does. And having that data and that information, you know, not to replace, you know, what's, you know, kind of we know from our personal, you know, and corporate experience, you know, from just that gut knowledge but is that additional aspect to round out, make us the best industry and the best decisions possible going forward. That's my hope 10 years from now. I share your optimism, Jay. I think there's a ton of potential. And even as we were alluding to earlier with the influx in innovation and venture capital and like a very strong focus on construction, like this industry impacts every single human on the planet. And I think sometimes it's easy to, to forget that aspect because we're just in it in the built environment and we're you know professionals working in the space, but it's just so important to improve and reduce waste and all these other things. And technology, I think, is going to be one of those levers of change that we get to pull that's going to really positively impact, you know, not just our industry, but the entire world itself. So we're wrapping up to the end of the show. And as you can see, we've got three data nerds on the uh, the call today so we uh, we went a little bit longer than usual but I think that's okay because there's so much great insight here to just jump in and say where do we get started like we've really highlighted okay there's some challenges that our industry has those challenges are commonly shared across all the different stakeholders regardless of project size or company type or location but we have this incredible opportunity to really start making meaningful improvements in both in a revenue base and just as a, you know, a way we get work done. But I've got one final question that I ask each guest. And Jay, you've been through this one before, so I'm going to kick it to Andy first. But what is one tool that you will always carry in your toolbox, no matter what project you're working on? I'll tell you, for me, it's going to be curiosity. It's as simple as that. Curiosity to ask the questions, to challenge things that are there. You know, there's all kinds of tools in this world that you can use to get to those answers. But you have to start with the curiosity to at least care to know the answers. And so I think that's the most simplistic answer I can give you. <laughs> no, I think that's great. And in asking questions, it, it is a skill. It's not it's not just something casual. They go, oh, gosh, you have so many questions. We're tired of it. Like having that onus to one care enough to ask the question and then also the courage to ask the question, because it's it's uncomfortable asking questions sometimes, especially if somebody's uncertain of how they may be perceived by asking it. But being able to come to the table and, you know, put that foot forward has an impact for you know yourself as far as learning and bringing in new information and ultimately the projects we 
work on because it forces everybody to have what might be a difficult conversation, but also a meaningful one at the same time. So thank you for sharing that. Jay, how about you? What is your one tool that you will always carry to any project you're working on? And I know uh, we've already made you do this one time, so I'm interested to see what comes out on round two. <laughs> well, it, you know, it's, it's called a toolbox for a reason, so it can hold multiple tools, right? <laughs> uh, you nailed say, it. I will say one that maybe, I don't want to say it's a new tool, but it's one I'm really working to master. And it's a complementary sort of angle to what Andy mentioned. And that's that's listening. I've been really fascinated with a lot of the, I'll say the insights and and thoughts of uh, Julian Treasure. If you're not familiar with him, he talks about listening and the difference that listening is not the same as hearing. And one of the things he talks about is, you know, that we should be listening 60% of the time and only speaking 40%. And how it's an easy trap to get into, you know, where I'm not really listening. Like I'm, I'm already thinking about what's the next thing I'm going to say? How am I going to respond? And everything that person is sharing me, that information, if I have that curiosity that Andy's talking about, it doesn't matter if I'm not listening to what, you know, the other person is saying or what the other information coming at me is saying. And so really I've just been trying to really kind of see how I can put into practice and really master that listening aspect as, as Julian Treasure has really kind of demonstrated uh, more and more each day. I appreciate that context. And, and you're absolutely right on it's sometimes very easy to get into the position of I'm waiting for my turn to say a thing now. And there's value there and that's important sometimes, but being able to find that balance between I'm consuming information because this person is sharing something important with me and I also have something to add to the conversation is is key. And Jim Lynch actually on the last episode said the same thing, Jay. So you guys are in line as far as which, uh, which tool you bring to the table. But we talked a little bit about how that changed in this world that we're in now with a very heavy focus on video calls. So it's very easy to fall into I'm here and I'm present, but I'm not necessarily listening because I could be scrolling through, you know, whatever website I wanted to to check on the news or Facebook or whatever while you're sharing, you know, your insights, but I'm not really actually listening. And so I think doubling down on the intentional and active listening is is probably a good skill for all of us to have in this post-COVID semi-remote work-life balance that we're experiencing here. So I know both of you are working on some really exciting stuff and have a lot of external opportunities coming up. So I want to make sure I give you both an opportunity to share what's coming up and talk about anything that you're excited about right now. So Andy, is there anything you'd like to plug or share with our listeners? I would say that not only are we working on things, we are growing at an amazing rate right now and uh, trying to keep up with that workload. And and there certainly is always challenges with hiring people. So I'll tell you that we are absolutely hiring. <laughs> so <laughs> please feel free like to reach it. out to me on LinkedIn or on Twitter. Either way, I'm on Twitter at, at 3D Andy Leak. I'm more on LinkedIn. Just got to Google me. I think I'm pretty sure I'm the only guy here that works at Peric in this role. So that aspect, I'll tell you, you know, the projects are just getting ever more challenging. I've been very fortunate in my role to speak at a lot of different industry events and help help kind of hopefully move the industry along and get buy-in. And we're really looking for people that are just, you know, curious, excited about technology, excited about building, more about building than anything. I mean, the technology we can always teach, but we cannot teach people to be curious. We can't teach them to reach out and, and want to go for that next challenging project. I mean, the grit and determination to be in construction or even in pre-construction. And I think it's important to, to, to point that out that, 
You know, we may spend 12 or 24 hours building, but we may have spent 12 or 24 months planning. And there's a tremendous amount of work and technology that goes into that part of the project as well, working with all of our design partners and all of all the folks that prefab things and so on. So there's plenty more coming down the pipeline in terms of new technology, new opportunities. We are fortunate to be a, a you know a builder that is ready to move and go around the country and work on large and small projects. So by all means, if you're excited to come and work with somebody, let me know because we got all kinds of great stuff going on. I love this, Andy. You're this is a digital builder first as far as a, a recruiting moment on the show, but I really like it. And for anybody still out there listening, if you're interested, I mean, you've had an hour to listen to Andy speak about technology at this point. So if you like what he said, like shoot him a LinkedIn message. We may have an opportunity here. It's great. Jay, how about you? Do you have anything you'd like to share with our listeners before they head off into the distance? Sure. Well, I mean, first I've got to say is just the excitement around being a part of the harnessing the data advantage and construction report. I mean, I really think this is just a really groundbreaking study that everybody in the industry should really look at. So it was really a, a, both an honor and a privilege to be a part of that. So really excited to see where this one goes. And then just secondarily, um, you know, we'll have our next North America construction overview coming out towards the end of the year. Uh, it's not just, you know, where's construction spending going, but it's, you know, how is it going? You know, what's changing from a composition standpoint and understanding, you know, where the markets may be next year and the years after. And so you'll probably catch me on the speaking circuit talking about that <laughs> a couple <laughs> of times at the turn of the year. But other than that, those would be the big thing. Uh, that's great, Jay. And, and I agree. The project that we worked on on that report was an absolute pleasure to uh, to bring to life. It was a, a beast, but there's so much great insight in there. So if, if you're out there, absolutely worth checking it out. We've got infographics. There's a recap blog. To, if uh, you jump on the Digital Builder blog, there's obviously an audiobook that I mentioned, and Jay and I are co-presenting on a webinar on October 28th, I believe, where we're going to get a little bit more into the data portion of this versus what we did today. It's a little easier when we've got visuals instead of an all audio format. So that'll be worth checking out and signing up for as well. And we'll include a, a link to that in the show notes. So outside of that, for those out there still listening, thanks for taking the time to join us on this episode of Digital Builder. If you've got any questions for me or want to appear on a future episode, you can find me on LinkedIn like everybody else or via Twitter at builder underscore digital. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please do rate the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you do listen to podcasts. All you've got to do is open the app, find Digital Builder and select the number of stars that you think we deserve. It's that easy and it makes a serious difference for my team and my boss specifically would be very happy if those numbers go up. So please go out and like and rate the show. I would sincerely appreciate it. And then of course, if you did like this episode, please share it with your friends. And on that final note, goodbye. You've been listening to Digital Builder. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. If you're listening with Apple Podcasts, we'd love for you to give a quick rating of the show. Simply tap the number of stars you think the podcast deserves, and then you're done. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.